presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I, Brad Little, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States, that I will support the Constitution of the United States, and the Constitution of the State of Idaho, and the Constitution of the State of Idaho, and that I will faithfully discharge the duties, and that I will faithfully discharge the duties of the office of governor, of the office of governor, to the best of my ability, to the best of my ability, so help, so help me God. Idaho's statewide constitutional officers were publicly sworn in on Friday, but elected officials are already busy gearing up for the 2023 legislative session. Tonight, we hear some of their priorities as well as their reaction to the Idaho Supreme Court ruling on the state's abortion ban. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week we get a preview of the governor's priorities for the upcoming legislative session, as well as how well those goals mesh with what House and Senate leaders have in mind. Producer Ruth Brown sits down with freshman representatives Jaron Crane and Sonia Galaviz to hear what they'd like to accomplish this year. Finally, former Attorney General and Lieutenant Governor David Leroy and former Assistant to Governor Cecil Andrus, Andy Brunel, discuss the historical significance of Friday public inauguration. But first, the Idaho Supreme Court released an opinion on Thursday upholding Idaho's abortion ban, as well as a civil enforcement mechanism that allows the family members of a fetus to sue an abortion provider, including pregnancies resulting from rape and incest. Hours before the opinion's release on Thursday, I asked Governor Brad Little what changes to the abortion laws he would like to see if the court did uphold them. I I'm very interested in how this is gonna go. Everybody knows that uh, I'm pro-life, uh, but I'm also pro-life for the life of the mother, so. What specifically would you like to see? I, I just wanna make, I think there's, there's a difference between the intent of some of the legislation and how, how it's being read, and that's that being, being read, and that's why we need to uh, get that clarity. We have a copy of the opinion and dissent, as well as reactions from stakeholders online. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. Also Thursday, the suspect accused of murdering four University of Idaho students appeared in a Lataw County court for the first time. The late December arrest of Washington State University PhD student Brian Koberger came after a multi-agency investigation into the November murders of Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, and Madison Mogan. Governor Little had appropriated $1 million from the governor's emergency fund to help with the investigation. On Thursday, he was asked about that appropriation and whether the state giving money for local investigations is unusual. That was a big issue to me, uh, but the state police were, before uh, we allocated that, they were already doing a lot of work up there uh, with the uh, with the Moscow City Police, who are the jurisdiction uh, that's in charge. And and I've, I, I'm cognizant that I don't want to start a priority that in every crime in the state, but we do have an obligation. Matter of fact, 
Uh, one of the projects that's a little stalled right now is our new crime lab. Uh, but for these complicated cases, uh, state forensic, state lab facility, state investigators are a huge priority. And so uh, I've got a very nice uh, note on my desk from the uh, uh, from the chief about the assistance that they provided. But this 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 is a, I I hope and pray this is a one off. We don't have to do anything like this again. Those questions came during the Idaho Press Club's legislative preview event at which we invited House and Senate leadership and Governor Little to discuss their priorities for the upcoming legislative session. Governor Little told reporters that he was mostly interested in staying the course with an emphasis on education, public safety, and property taxes. School choice is part of public education, but I, I, I uh, you know, it, it goes back to my overarching, I want our kids to stay in Idaho. Uh, and and they need a good K-12 education, but they also, in this complicated uh, world, they also need uh, more skills, whether it be career technical, whether it be a, a engineering degree, uh, fill in the blank. And so, and both those were a part of House Bill 1, uh, both the K-12 investment and, and uh, the in-demand careers, whether it be uh, traditional college or a lot of expansion that we're going to uh, do in the CTE area. Uh, I anticipate uh, that uh, property taxes will be, uh, which, and of course, not everybody directly pays property taxes. Everybody does indirectly. Uh, I anticipate that that will be, uh, you know, we've got room to uh, to do some work there. But like I said, in the in the property tax area, you got to make it to where. It benefits everybody and not just certain taxing districts that fall into a certain category, whether it be taxing districts that are mainly industrial tax, that are resort areas. Uh, property taxes are complicated uh, for good reason, and, and I'm sure there'll be ample discussions. But as always, members of legislative leadership had their own ideas. House Speaker Mike Moyle, Senate President Pro Tem Chuck Winder, Assistant House Minority Leader Lauren Nekachea, and Senate Minority Leader Melissa Wintrow gave insights into what we'll see from their caucuses this year. You'll see some efforts to uh, have the money follow the students, maybe in a different way than it has in the past. Uh, there's some Supreme Court rulings around the country that allow uh, tax money to be used uh, in private schools. I, I think you'll see uh, some pressure to do some of that. Uh, we had a program uh, over the summer and still continuing of $50 million of federal money to help uh, parents uh, take care of the needs primarily as it related to remote learning. Uh, but I think those are some of the things you might see. There aren't a lot of private schools in Idaho. Uh, we still have a constitutional obligation to fund uh, our public schools, and that has to be our first priority, uh, and uh, we'll continue to do that. Uh, but we have the uh, luxury right now to be able to do a little of both. Um, obviously, to invest in our quality education in every student, to meet our constitutional and moral obligation to fully fund public education, and to make sure that our students are getting the the foundation and grounding they need to do what the governor wants to do and that stay in our state and work here and find a home. So I think that's always been a top priority for us. And 
I do think we need to keep public funds in public education. We've heard about the competition for resources and the tension that creates for education. So let's not increase that tension anymore and be sure that we're investing in our public schools. The slow growing environment, you know, people might not feel it so much when they're asked to subsidize that growth. When the West Ada School District is growing at the rate of needing to build a new elementary school every single year, then residents start to really feel that. And it's just not fair to ask them to subsidize that growth when we ask developers to contribute to, you know, paying for the new sewage lines, the roads, and the other pieces of infrastructure that their new development is going to necessitate. So making growth pay for, for itself through impact fees is something that we can do that doesn't take anything away from local government. It's not a tax shift. Um, it's something that's, I think, very popular, and, and I don't know why we can't get it done. Pro Tem Winder mentioned the, our circuit breaker program. Um, it was actually, it actually was intended, um, the change in the law that kicked over a thousand low-income seniors off of the circuit breaker. And I would love to go back and correct that so we can get low-income seniors um, back into property tax reduction and look at other ways we can help low-income Idahoans get into that program and get that assistance. It's important that we have it for veterans. I don't know why we couldn't look at um, helping other low-income Idahoans um, who don't meet that age requirement stay in their home. So I, I don't want to get into the business where the legislature um, goes out and micromanages local governments, but it, you need to understand, my friends, we don't collect it and we don't spend it and it's all tied to a budget that they approve. So the legislature can do things like the homeowner's exemption. So what does the homeowner's exemption do? It shifts it, shifts it to somebody else. Does the homeowner's exemption always work? Remember, it's budget driven. You have a budget. And the budget is divided by the value to get a mill levy rate that is then multiplied by your property. When you raise the homeowner's exemption, the value divided by the budget goes down. The mill levy rate goes up. So the homeowners, in some cases, don't even get tax relief. They think they do because the value of their home went down. But the value of their home went down, just raised the mill levy rate. And so when we talk about property taxes, it's really easy to use buzzwords. But when you want to solve the problem, you need to get back to the budget because that's where the problem is at. We also asked leaders as well as new House Health and Welfare Chairman John Vanderwoude about their thoughts on the potential for repealing Medicaid expansion after voters approved the expansion in 2018 with just over 60% of the vote. Some Republicans have been voicing concerns over higher than expected costs to the state and the potential for the federal government to change the federal medical assistance percentage or FMAP rate from the current 90-10 split. In other words, the federal government currently pays 90% of the cost of Medicaid expansion and the state pays 10%. Supporters of expansion point to the need for vulnerable Idahoans to keep their health care, as well as the cost to the state and local governments if expansion goes away. This is the five-year uh, look back at Medicaid expansion. When that passed, we were told it would provide property tax relief. It didn't. We were told it would cost $40 million. I think it's in the 100 and some million, 130, something like that. It's way more than they said it would be. Uh, it's out of control. And if we do not get this Medicaid animal in control, uh, it's going to have an impact on education and other, and other places. So we've got to be really careful there. I don't think it's uh, easily repealed, uh, but I think it is going to have to be looked at from the standpoint of 
what are the costs, what are the containment. You heard the governor talk about it. Uh, anytime you have a potential uh, shift in the uh, rate of reimbursement, uh, it could have a significant impact on uh, all of our budgets. Um, so something we're going to have to look at very carefully, but we also have to realize that uh, a lot of the people that uh, are using it don't have any other uh, available uh, health care. Uh, so it's something, you know, you have to have to try and balance all that out. Medicaid expansion is the best deal around for Idahoans. Uh, we can put in $1 and then we leverage $9 to pay for medical care at a time when we've already discussed how stretched thin our um, health care system is. Uh, we can't be stripping people of their health care at this point, especially in a pandemic. And we know the needs that folks have. And in this economy, it is tough. I don't believe we can repeal Medicaid expansion, but I do believe we have to control the cost of it. My biggest fear on Medicaid expansion is that if Congress decides they're going to start reining in the budget and they take Medicaid expansion and put it all into Medicaid and our reimbursement rate goes down to 60 some percent instead of 90 percent. Uh, that to me is not beyond the realm of possibilities because the original legislation said it was only for a certain length of time and I don't remember what it was to do the 90% uh, reimbursement rate. And if it goes down to the 65% the reimbursement rate, then it's gonna be a really big cost to the state. The House and Senate leaders aren't the only players at the State House. The 2023 session sees the largest incoming freshman class in decades. And there are big questions about how these new lawmakers will change the dynamics in the House and Senate. On Thursday, producer Ruth Brown spoke to freshman representatives Sonia Galaviz and Jaron Crane about their goals, as well as their reactions to the abortion ruling that had been released just moments before they sat down on set. Representative Crane, the Idaho Supreme Court just a few minutes ago uh, issued an opinion upholding Idaho's abortion law. Um, is there anything you would like to say regarding the decision or plans moving forward? Um, yeah, I'm uh, not a spokesman for my caucus. Um, but yeah, it looks like they constitutionally upheld everything. Um, we're going to look deeper into what we have on the books and see if there's any changes that need to be made in the upcoming session. Representative Galaviz. Yeah. Seeing that it came just mere moments ago, sure. you know, and trying to read and skim through a, a lengthy response, um, it's disappointing, you know, that the three laws are going to be upheld. And prim primarily, where my heart goes is to the health and safety of women across the state. Um, as I was, you know, campaigning and after I was elected, I was able to meet with several different. Um, organizations and women and the Idaho Medical Association and it's not just from my own purview or my own thoughts about bodily autonomy or the rights of women and our own bodies but listening to the medical professionals really emphasize the the struggle that it has put that these three laws have put upon them and the medical profession but also the fear that it has um, um, 
the fear that has overtaken the community in the medical profession and women trying to seek care. And so directly from physicians, again, not my stories, physicians talking about not being able to treat women who had had a miscarriage, but the miscarriage didn't fully complete. They needed to help them, you know, help the mother. The, the child was no longer, the life was no longer viable. But through the procedure that was necessary, they were afraid that they would fall under that, the civil liability law, and that they would be, um, you know, held subject to criminal prosecution because of it. Also other doctors talking about women traveling from city to city trying to get care for an ectopic pregnancy and doctors not caring for them thinking, you know, that they were going to be held responsible for anything that, you know, may end in the termination of, of the fetus. And so, you know, during one particular meeting that we had with the Idaho Medical Association, and there were several of my colleagues in the room and um, Republican legislators as well that apologized publicly saying that was not the intention of what we did, or, you know, what we meant during the session. Um, we did not mean to impede upon medical professionals' um, ability to care, and we certainly didn't mean for women's lives to be at risk because of this, but that's, the actuality, that's what's happening, is that women are at significant risk of being able to get healthcare, of, to be able to get treatment, and, and that's a problem. To send a woman home because her health is at risk, but not her life yet, because that's the only provision, right? The exemption, the only exemption that exists is if her life is in direct risk. And so again, I'm sorry to beat this, you know, again, but another story from a medical professional saying she had to send home the mother until an infection set in from the, the fetus that had not, you know, completely, um, you know, been terminated that until the infection set in and it risked the life of the mother then the woman could come back and receive care and the medical professional felt like she would be covered in, in that sense. So um, we've got some problems <laughs> with these three laws. You know, and my colleague Jaren saying that, you know, hopefully we look at it and make sure that we're um, addressing the, the health and life of women in our state and making sure that the intention um, of the laws, you know, the uh, original intention and then also what's best for our citizens of Idaho is upheld that um, people should feel safe to be able to approach medical professionals and get the care they need. Well, I won't grill either of you on it too much sure. as we're taping at about 3.30 on Thursday. Um, I am gonna move on. Uh, you're both new to the House this year, you're freshmen. Representative Crane, uh, you're assigned to State Affairs, which is my understanding you've requested. It can be quite controversial committee. Mm -hmm. Why State Affairs and what do you hope uh, Hope to accomplish yeah, this session. Yeah, so when I look at, um, I'm on the three committees. I'm on transportation, defense, business, and state affairs. Um, I was blessed to get all three of my choices. Um, the state affairs side of my life is, um, I guess, the lens and the worldview. It's the the tough and the sticky things that like we just barely got into. Um, I care passionately and deeply about those issues. Um, so I want to be in that. I want to be in that discussion. I want to be in the room, um, bring ideas forward. I want to hear people testify. I want to hear what the issues are and what the best solutions can be. Um, the other two committees, business is because I'm a business owner and transportation defense because I served in the military here in Idaho. So um, I'm excited to join the State Affairs Committee. My brother Brent Crane is the chairman. Um, he does a great job, he runs a great committee um, and that will be a fun, fun thing to get to sit on that committee with him. But uh, excited to join and hear about those issues that are controversial but they're very, very important. 
Representative Galaviz, you'll be on the Education Committee this year. There's been a lot of discussion around sure. um, education choice, school choice. Um, there's different language to use around right. it. You tell me. Uh, what do you hope to see come out of the Education Committee and what are your concerns? Sure, well, I look forward to the discussion and I'm excited to build relationships and work across the aisle. I'm excited to work with Representative Crane. Um, he's great and was one of the friendliest you know, faces <laughs> when we were in our orientation week. So I think um, this freshman class coming in really wants to do the work of the people and they wanna have a conversation. And we may not always see eye to eye, but we are willing to do the work of the people and find common ground wherever possible. So thank you for yeah, that. You. Um, you know. Public education is my North Star. I've been 20 years in public ed in Idaho, and so I, there's, a, there's a lot of work to be done. I think there's a lot of attention being given on education, particularly from um, since the additional funds came through during um, the special session, and we've got work to do to be able to increase funding to our schools. We have, um, our districts have not been fully funded, you know, ever. There's um, quite a bit of work that we can do to attract and retain teachers. We have a significant gap in certified positions and classified positions in every district across the state. I know the educational savings accounts or vouchers, whatever we wanna, you know, call them, is, is a hot topic. And I think there's a conversation to be had about where where families have absolute right and choice in their child's education, but not taking from the general fund. So any, any whether you wanna call it an ESA or a voucher, anything that takes from the general fund of public schools and gives to a private institution, um, that is a voucher. And so, and that is something that I, I'm not for, and there's a laundry list of reasons why, why, but having grown up in rural Idaho, knowing that that would be devastating to our rural schools to remove that money, and then the majority of um, where access lies for private education, if that's what a voucher is for, is basically in the Treasure Valley. So it's, ESAs are, um, reporting to solve a problem that doesn't exist. We have enormous choice within the public um, sector of public education and some really exciting choices that exist even um, through supplemental, through IDLA and uh, magnet schools and charter schools. So I think a conversation is to be had about what is it that Idahoans want and to make sure they know um, what choices are robust and available to them within public education. So I'm excited to be um, uh, an active school teacher, you know, now and during this conversation that perhaps if I can provide context to what some of the decisions may look like on the ground, like in actuality, I'm happy to do that. And then to, um, to be a voice for public educators in that space, it's something that I hold really dear to my heart and is a, is a passion for sure. Representative Crane, did you want to weigh yeah. in on that? I'm sure you have plans for education. I do, I do. Uh, so as Sonia was just saying, it, it, it's an important topic, um, like we just talked about. The One of the bills that I'm working on right now, it's in RS and it's currently at uh, Revintax, sitting with Chairman Monks, is uh, to provide a light item for public schools on impact fees. Um, currently, we do have impact fees available, but schools aren't on those. Um, when you go and look at the people that are affected by having to pay into hey, there's a new development in this, this area. We may have to build a school now because of the population change. The people that are directly buying those homes probably should have some skin in the game and putting it into the school more so than the people that live in that surrounding area. So one of the bills that I'm working on right now is to put an impact fee line item um, in there for public schools. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see what she brings forward, uh, but it'll be good. 
On Friday, Idaho Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Bevin publicly swore in all of Idaho's constitutional officers in front of the State House. I was joined by David Leroy, former Attorney General and Lieutenant Governor, as well as Andy Brunel, former Special Assistant on Natural Resources to Governor Cecil Andrus, and staffer for Secretary of State Pete Senarusa to discuss the historical significance of the day. I remember the inauguration in 1979, Pete Senarusa being re-inaugurated re uh, for his additional term as Secretary of State. Uh, but it was a big deal where uh, John Evans uh, was being, uh, he had taken office and had served for two years, but it was his first election. And uh, that same day, which you would have been inaugurated um, as Attorney General that day. But it was a, a, a big coming together for the uh, officials on that day in 1979. Um, what I remember from 1991, uh, what might be a little bit different is, one, the weather was a lot worse. It was 19 degrees out, and so C. Sandris kept things short, and it was over in 40 minutes or so. Um, but it was a continuation where he was moving into his fourth term, where it was more with, uh, some changes where Larry Echohawk uh, was taking office for the first time. As but it was attorney general. As attorney general. That it was uh, more of a continuation of the work and the day-to-day -day work. And so the inauguration there may have been a little bit less, I would say, uh, significant from the family and the coming together, but more just uh, continuing the work. And what I remember in the office at that time with Governor Andrus was, the inaugural address, the inaugural activities being additional work and staff time in addition to preparing the state of the state, in, pre in addition to the state budget message and preparing the executive budget for the legislative session. And I think today there's maybe a little bit of an element in that that we heard from Governor Little. He's coming back for his second term and he doubled down on much of his uh, agenda that he mentioned in his first inaugural four years ago, the investment in education and children and uh, looking at reg regulatory red tape. So there's a more business aspect, I think, that you see in some of today's themes as well. He's, he's also coming off of not just victories in the primary and general election, but also that advisory vote that we saw on the November ballot that reaffirmed strong support, more than 80% of voters said we support your agenda when it comes to income tax and education spending. Um, you know, that said, there were some hard-fought primaries and a couple general election races. In your experience, how, is, how easy is it to come together and work as a team um, after those hard-fought elections? Well, it is possible and it is necessary, frankly, in the public interest. Uh, I was elected lieutenant governor and we had John Evans, a Democrat, elected as governor. So I approached the governor uh, the first day we were in office by going down, making an appointment, giving him a list of 10 or 12 things that I wished to do as lieutenant governor if we would work out some uh, activities back and forth between the two offices. The governor wasn't too interested in my list to start with, but as it got closer and closer and closer, to the time that he was going to leave the state and leave me in charge as acting governor the first time. 
uh, we got uh, very interested in that list and he ended up giving me 10 or 12 of the things that I wanted. But I'm interested also in the timing of this ceremony today. As we know, they were officially sworn in earlier and have been in office uh, several days. Uh, we've learned, you've learned, for instance, as have I, that many of the officials have already met together and talked about putting behind them those problems of campaign rhetoric and working together effectively, particularly the governor and the attorney general. That's very significant and very promising. You can find my full discussion with Leroy and Brunel online, as well as our full inauguration broadcast. Also online this week, I spoke to Chris Cargill of the Mountain States Policy Center. You can find all of those links at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. On Monday, we'll have live coverage of Governor Brad Little's State of the State Address starting at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, noon Pacific on Idaho Public Television. You can also catch it online after it airs at IdahoPTV.org. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.